You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 187, The Evacuation of Philadelphia. As I've discussed over multiple episodes, General William Howe's major initiative for 1777 was the capture of Philadelphia. As was his usual practice, Howe went about the process slowly and methodically, leaving New York in July. Then he sailed down to the Chesapeake and marched north to Philadelphia, fighting several battles before finally entering the city two and a half months later in late September. He then had to spend even more time defending the city against attacks and clearing out defenses along the Delaware River to allow the Navy to link up with the city and bring in supplies. Philadelphia was as close as the Patriots had to a national capital. It was the largest city in the colonies and the seat of the Continental Congress. Its capture, however, seemed to evoke only a collective yawn on both sides of the Atlantic. Congress simply moved to York, Pennsylvania, and continued its work. The Continental Army continued its efforts to keep the British pinned down in the city. More importantly, Howe's focus on Philadelphia divided British forces, and this allowed the Continental Northern Army to capture General Burgoyne's army at Saratoga. The capture of that army, of course, was a major setback to the British war effort, and also encouraged France to enter the war, which completely changed events. As I discussed in more detail last week, the entry of France into the war completely upended plans of war strategists in London. Instead of simply focusing on putting down the rebellion, Britain suddenly had to defend colonies all over the world, as well as a potential invasion of the British Isles itself. That is why the Carlisle Commission that I discussed last week pretty much wanted to wrap up the war at this point under whatever terms they had to. Now, shortly after capturing Philadelphia, General Howe had submitted his resignation to London. He had been frustrated for over a year that the ministry would not provide him with sufficient troops to launch multiple campaigns and capture larger areas of the continent. Without such reinforcements, General Howe thought the whole strategy was unwinnable and he wanted out. It's not clear if General Howe really wanted to resign or whether he thought his offer might wake up some folks in London to the need for a substantial increase in soldiers to take and hold North America. But shortly after his resignation request arrived in London, news of Saratoga also reached the ministry. The king told Prime Minister Lord North that someone had to go as a result, either General Howe or Secretary of State Lord Germain. Firing Germain might have brought down the whole government, leading to new elections. So, North opted to accept Howe's resignation and recalled him to London. 
North had tried to replace General Howe by asking General Jeffrey Amherst to take the North American command. As you may recall, General Amherst had served as commander during the French and Indian War. Amherst, however, wanted an army of 75,000 in North America before he would agree to the command. That was more than double the number of troops in North America at the time. The ministry wasn't going to pay for an army of that size for General Howe, and it wasn't going to do so for General Amherst either. So instead, the king promoted Amherst to full general, what we would today call a four-star general, and gave him a title of commander-in-chief of forces, a position that had been vacant for nearly 20 years and which gave General Amherst a seat in the cabinet. Amherst would remain in London, organizing the worldwide effort against France and providing military advice directly to the cabinet. The ministry only then turned to General Sir Henry Clinton to take command in North America. Clinton, of course, had been second in command under Howe for many years. He had famously chafed at this position and attempted to resign several times. With this change, however, he finally got the full command that he had so long wanted. But his army became a shell of its former self and nowhere near large enough to retake control of North America. Along with his orders to take command, the ministry ordered Clinton to send thousands of soldiers from his existing army, some of his best soldiers, to Florida and the West Indies to protect British colonies there from possible French invasions. Lord Germain had sent orders to deploy 5,000 men to take the French island of St. Lucia, and another 3,000 men to St. Augustine in East Florida. And that was about 40% of the total force that was in Philadelphia at the time. Between those transfers and the loss of Burgoyne's 7,000-man army a few months earlier, the British had a much smaller presence in North America from the numbers they had had a year earlier, when General Howe was still complaining even then that they did not have nearly enough soldiers to get the job done. To prevent these reduced troop levels from being spread out too much and subject to an attack like the outpost on Trenton, the military planners in London ordered Clinton to abandon Philadelphia entirely and move the army to New York. Clinton even had discretion to abandon New York and Rhode Island entirely and take his army to Halifax if he deemed that appropriate. This was about the same time that the ministry formed the Carlisle Commission that I discussed last week. The commission was there to try to see if there was any possible diplomatic solution that would just end hostilities in North America. Britain was writing off control of North America for the time being and focused on not losing more of its empire to France. Sir Henry Clinton received his orders in New York and traveled to Philadelphia to take command of the army. He arrived on May 8, 1778 spending the next few weeks with General Howe before Howe left for England. Even before General Howe set sail at the end of May, Clinton focused on packing up the army in Philadelphia and getting ready to move to New York. For the Loyalists in Philadelphia, this was their worst nightmare. These people had remained quiet during the early years of the war, trying to avoid being attacked or harassed by Patriot mobs. So, when the British finally arrived in the fall of 1777, the Loyalists were finally able to come forward. They had publicly professed their support for the British, 
and even assisted the occupying army. So now, when the British made the decision to leave, the Loyalists knew that they were going to have to answer for what the Patriots considered to be their treason. Before the army made public its plans to abandon Philadelphia, rumors abounded that it was about to happen. One Loyalist who had joined the police force in Philadelphia that the British Army had established also attended the Michianza party for General Howe's departure. At the party, he asked the general what the locals should do. Howe's suggestion was that they should try to, quote, make peace with the Continental Congress. That, of course, was a frightening prospect. The Pennsylvania Patriots considered the Loyalist actions to be criminal. At best, their property could be confiscated. They could also face prison or even the gallows. The time for making peace with Congress was long gone. On May 25th, the day after Howe actually left Philadelphia, the city's leading loyalist, Joseph Galloway, submitted a petition to General Clinton asking the army to remain in Philadelphia. Galloway recommended raising a force of several thousand Loyalist soldiers with the backing of British regulars so that they could hold Philadelphia against the Continentals. Of course, Galloway had suggested raising a Loyalist army when the British first arrived. It had not happened because Loyalists in the area were unwilling to enlist. Other than out of a sense of desperation, it's unclear why Galloway or anyone else thought that another attempt on the eve of evacuation would inspire more Loyalists to put themselves on the line and make themselves and their property a target for Patriot wrath. Loyalists, of course, were not the only ones who objected to abandoning a city that the British had worked so long and so hard to capture. Generals Gray and Erskine still wanted to go on the offensive. They proposed an attack on Valley Forge, pushing the Continentals to retreat across the Susquehanna River and allowing the British to take control of the region. Erskine said the prospect of retreat made him, quote, ashamed of the name of a Briton. Additionally, the recently arrived peace commissioners, who were blindsided by the retreat orders, told Clinton that the decision to retreat completely undercut any attempts to bargain from a position of strength. It just made the British look weak and desperate. The army had to remain and put up a strong front in order for the negotiators to succeed. The commissioners requested that Clinton at least keep an army in Philadelphia until the commission could negotiate an agreement with the Continental Congress. Now, despite all these objections from loyalists, from his officers, and from the commission, Clinton had very clear and non-discretionary orders to abandon Philadelphia, and even a delay was dangerous. The French Navy was expected to arrive soon. If the French bottled up the British by occupying the Delaware Bay, the British might find itself trapped and face a prospect of surrender just as General Burgoyne had a year earlier. The one concession that Clinton did make was to free up some of the British ships for civilian evacuation. He offered Loyalist families the opportunity to board ships with a limited amount of property that they could fit on the ships and sail with the army to New York. Most of the soldiers in the army, other than those wounded or sick or at risk of desertion, would not take up space on the ships, 
but instead would march to New York across New Jersey. On May 20th, the same day as the army marched out to Barron Hill in hopes of capturing the Marquis de Lafayette, General Clinton issued orders to remove artillery and stores that could be not carried back when the army marched. The heavy ordnance would be loaded aboard ships. Clinton continued to order offensive forays out of the city toward the American lines in hopes of keeping the enemy from realizing that an evacuation was underway. Washington, of course, was well aware that the British were leaving. On June 10th, he wrote to his brother, saying that he had been expecting the British to leave for the prior two weeks and could not figure out why they hadn't left yet. Washington also suggested to Congress that it offer a conditional amnesty to the Loyalists in Philadelphia. An amnesty would allow the Continentals to benefit from these artisans and skilled workers who were ready to jump at the chance of continuing to work in Philadelphia. Congress, however, was unwilling to consider such a plan. At the same time, the Loyalists in Philadelphia hoped to send a delegation to York to ask for terms from the Continental Congress. General Howe had recommended that they be allowed to do this, but General Clinton refused. If the Philadelphia Loyalists sought and received amnesty, what would prevent the New York Loyalists from doing the same thing? For Clinton, the Loyalists would have to leave with the army or suffer the full wrath of the Patriots when it retook the city. In total, between three and 5,000 Loyalists boarded British transports or merchant ships and sailed to New York. Some remained in New York, while others went from there to London or other parts of the empire. The thousands of other Loyalists, unwilling to give up their homes, opted to remain in Philadelphia and just, well, take their chances under Patriot rule. Meanwhile, the army began the process of destroying its defenses and any supplies that they could not take with them. Rumors spread that the army planned to burn Philadelphia as it left, although those proved just to be rumors. Thousands of extra blankets, tons of food, even several ships that were still under construction were all burned. Some of the fires ended up burning a few houses, but these were unintentional. Even some large cannons were spiked and dumped into the river to make more room for civilians and their property aboard the ships. Many refugees ended up sitting in the Delaware River aboard these ships for several weeks waiting for departure. They couldn't get off the ships for fear that they would lose their spots, but at the same time, they were just sitting there getting sick and running out of food before they even left port. Many of these folks would arrive in New York in very poor condition. Prior to the evacuation, the Pennsylvania Executive Council had attainted hundreds of named individuals of committing treason by cooperating with the enemy. The vast majority of these people, remarkably, remained in Philadelphia and just hoped that they would receive mercy. For many well-to-do Philadelphians, the thought of abandoning all their property just to board ships and live as refugees in another colony was simply too much to bear. By June 15th, the last of the rear guard British and Hessian regiments began crossing the Delaware into New Jersey from various ferries in or near the city. It had taken days to cross thousands of soldiers and their supplies, all the while facing the fear of an enemy attack as the process continued. By the morning of June 18th, 
the ships had set sail, and the army was fully in New Jersey. At 10 a.m. on the morning of June 18th, Lieutenant Colonel Cosmo Gordon, a British regular officer, woke up in Philadelphia after a night of heavy drinking. He quickly discovered that the city had been completely abandoned. His unit, along with the rest of the army, was marching away in New Jersey. The final British ships in the river had already set sail and were away from port. The panicked officer quickly grabbed his things and rushed down to the port. There he found a friendly boatman who he paid to take him across the river. As far as we know, Gordon was the last officer to leave Philadelphia. Around 11 a.m., Admiral Howe, who was already aboard his flagship, the Eagle, in the middle of the Delaware River, weighed anchor and sailed away. That same morning, a militia scout named George Roberts rode out to Valley Forge to report that the British had abandoned Philadelphia. About the same time that Colonel Gordon was making his escape across the Delaware River to New Jersey, Washington received Roberts's report. Another group of Delaware militia on horseback had entered the city that morning and had captured about 30 enemy soldiers who had not left in time. Washington dispatched Major General Benedict Arnold with a brigade of about 400 soldiers to take control of the city. Arnold, you may recall, was still recovering from his leg wound at Saratoga when he turned up at Valley Forge about a month earlier, ready to return to duty. Still not really ready for combat, Washington designated Arnold to serve as the military commander of Philadelphia following the British evacuation. Riding with Arnold into Philadelphia was Washington's aide-de-camp, Colonel Tench Tillman, who had been a Philadelphia merchant before the war, as well as Washington's former aide-de-camp, Joseph Reed, who had been a Philadelphia lawyer before the war. At that time, Reed was a delegate to the Continental Congress. Continental General Henry Knox and Philadelphia Militia General John Cadwallader also rode with the first occupying force to enter the city. The comments of everyone who entered the city was that it was a complete and utter mess. Piles of garbage lay everywhere, in the streets, in public buildings, in private homes. Occupying troops and others had used houses, public buildings, and even Independence Hall as a place to relieve themselves. The smell of human feces and urine was everywhere. Some occupying soldiers had even taken the winter to fill entire basements with their own human waste. Many churches had their gravestones knocked down so that churchyards could be turned into horse-riding areas. Church pews and a great deal of other furniture had been used for firewood. Almost no wooden fences had survived the occupation. In some cases, entire houses had been dismantled and burned for firewood. Even some of the better houses had been looted. Major John Andre, who had occupied Benjamin Franklin's house, left with a full-length portrait of the founder, and also with his music and scientific equipment and most of his library. Andre blamed Franklin for bringing France into the war and for getting General Howe recalled. He defended his looting as a form of payback against his enemy. As I said, the damage to the city overall was severe, and it would take months to clean up and repair to make Philadelphia functional again. Aside from assuming formal control of Philadelphia, the purpose in sending Arnold and other key officers 
was to take control of any supplies that the British had left behind that the Continental Army needed. The following day, Arnold issued proclamations of martial law and ordered all citizens to provide an inventory of any items held in the city. The Continental Congress, still out in York, had passed resolutions ordering the army to put up an embargo on all trade and secure all valuables within the city until a joint committee made up of delegates from Congress and the Executive Council could determine which items were British property and therefore subject to seizure without compensation. Continental and state forces secured warehouses, deployed guards to prevent looting. They locked down the city to prevent any goods from entering or leaving Philadelphia until there could be an accounting. General Arnold set up his headquarters at the Penn Mansion, where General Howe had kept his headquarters for the prior nine months. Arnold spent considerable money refurbishing the mansion and hiring a domestic staff to run it. Despite the condition of Independence Hall, which had been used as a prison, as a hospital, and even a toilet during the occupation, the Continental Congress voted to adjourn its session in York on June 27th and resume work in Philadelphia the following week. Although Congress had planned to resume on July 2nd, they didn't get a quorum to do business until July 7th. Although General Arnold took control of the city with a few hundred soldiers, the bulk of the Continental Army did not waste any time with any sort of grand entrance back into Philadelphia. Instead, General Washington deployed his army directly into southern New Jersey in pursuit of his foe. The Continental Army began its summer campaign with an aggressive pursuit of the British Army as it retreated toward New York. And that is where we're going to have to take up the story next week. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks again to Trey Nance, George Davis, and Lewis White for support of this podcast at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. Thanks also to Lee Saham for support at the Robert Morris Circle level. Also, thanks to my new Standard Bearer level supporters who joined last month, Peter Grathoff, Douglas Donnelly, 
Brian Roach, and Wynn Webster. All of you will be receiving your first monthly flag magnet soon. I also appreciate the one-time gifts via PayPal from Carolyn Wood, Matthew Domer, and Maurice Walton. Matt, best of luck with that master's thesis. Also, I just opened an account on buymeacoffee.com. I really haven't put any links for it up anywhere, but if you've used that site and want to buy me a coffee or give me support through that site, feel free to do so. Look up Amrev Podcast. Everyone who supports this podcast, either through a one-time contribution or ongoing contributions, helps me to cover my expenses and keeps everything free for everyone else who is not in a position to provide financial support. I greatly appreciate everyone who has been able to step up. This week I covered the British evacuation of Philadelphia. In many ways, the British occupation of Philadelphia was the high watermark of the British effort to reassert control over America during the war. The evacuation marked the slow decline that would drag out over the next five years. I suppose one could argue that the British temporarily captured some larger swaths of territory in the South in the later years of the war, but those were really lightly populated areas, and the British really could not establish authority outside of a few camps. The purpose of the Philadelphia evacuation was to remove soldiers from North America and put them to use in other parts of the British Empire. So the size of the British Army in the 13 states never again reached the size that it had in 1777 and early 1778. Philadelphia was the second largest city in the British Empire, behind only London. General Howe had captured the city in hopes that it would symbolize American defeat and bring the war closer to an end. Instead, the capture only ended General Howe's career. The British Army left the city in a mess. Independence Hall was filled with human excrement, and people spent weeks trying to get it cleaned out. Returning members of Congress had to live with the stench for quite some time. Of course, the rest of the city was a complete mess as well. Invading armies have a way of devastating their host cities just by living there and not having much concern for what the place will look like after they leave. The other massive scar that the British left behind was the division between patriots and loyalists. The calls for vengeance, or justice, I guess, depending on your view, against the other side led to years of recriminations and further suffering. Some people have criticized my decision to use the term patriot as a way of favoring one side in this conflict, rather than maintaining a neutral perspective. In point of fact, the term patriot is the term that both sides recognized at the time as referring to those who were seeking independence. British politicians, soldiers, and other loyalists likely referred to the patriots as rebels, but if someone used the term patriot at the time, everybody would understand which side they meant. Also, the term patriot did not necessarily have the same positive connotation that it does today. In some 17th and 18th century contexts, the term was used in a derogatory way. A patriot was someone who supported their country, but it often applied in a context where people thought a country had an illegitimate ruler 
and that the Patriots supported the overthrow of that ruler in favor of the one they considered the legitimate ruler. So the term Patriot was sometimes used as a term for a zealot who was looking to overthrow the established peace. Okay, enough about that. On to this week's book recommendation. I've already recommended several books on the occupation of Philadelphia and have not found any that deal specifically with the evacuation. So this week's book recommendation has nothing to do with my topic this week. I'm going to recommend a book that talks about a town that's near Philadelphia. The book is Revolutionary Princeton, 1774 to 1783 by William L. Kidder. The book covers the town of Princeton, New Jersey, throughout the war, including the British occupation and aftermath of that town. I think it gives a good account of what it was like for a civilian to live through an occupation and liberation during the war. I had the opportunity to interview Larry Kidder about his book, which I plan to release as a special episode later this month. He just published the book a few months ago. It's an interesting read at just over 300 pages, covering the entire war from a civilian perspective. The author, Larry Kidder, has written a number of other really good books about the American Revolution, including Ten Crucial Days, which covers the days from Washington's crossing of the Delaware through the Battle of Princeton and was a book recommendation of the week a little over a year ago. So if you're interested, look for Revolutionary Princeton. 1774 to 1783. My online recommendation this week is an article called Assessment of Damages Done by the British Troops During the Occupation of Philadelphia, 1777 to 1778 by Anthony Cuthbert. This was first published in the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography in 1901. It's really just a list of the monetary claims made by people after the occupation but I find it interesting because it gives some idea of the level of destruction that the British Army inflicted on the city. My link to the article goes to archive.org, but you can also find the article on JSTOR. I use the archive link rather than the JSTOR link because JSTOR requires you to register for a free account before you can view it. But as I've said before, if you don't have a JSTOR account, you may want to sign up for one. There is an amazing amount of really good reading there. As always, you can search for the article yourself or just use the links that I've included on my website and blog. Go to blog.amrevpodcast.com for more details. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.